Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 25 years ago, my guest on today's show became an instant movie star when he went toe-to-toe with Robin Williams in one of the funniest movies ever made. That's all I am to you, isn't it? A meal ticket. Never mind about my feelings. Never mind about my suffering. It's just about your show. Not even our show. Your show. Well, I want a palimony agreement. And I want one now. Well, I don't have a palimony agreement on me right now. Is tomorrow all right? Don't use that tone to me. What tone? That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard. This is the 100th episode of The Last Lap. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I could not be more excited to bring you today's interview with the great Nathan Lane. Nathan tells me on today's show that he actually can believe it's been 25 years since he made The Birdcage. But I have to tell you, I really cannot believe that we have put out 100 episodes of this podcast. From our very first episode with Sarah Silverman back at the beginning of 2019, I've wanted The Last Laugh to be a different kind of comedy podcast that's not only funny, but also digs into all of the thorny and controversial issues that have come to really dominate the comedy world. And this talk with Nathan Lane is no exception. We get into all of it, including the time Oprah tried to get him to come out publicly before he was ready, and the very specific reason why a sequel featuring Hank Azaria's Guatemalan character Agador Spartacus will probably never happen. Before we get to that interview, I just want to thank everyone who has been listening from the beginning, as well as anyone who might be checking out this podcast for the first time today. We literally could not have gotten this far without you, and I feel like the show is only going to get better from here, so stay tuned. But now, here's me with Nathan Lane. Hello. Matt, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Welcome. So just before we get started here, I don't know if you saw the note. Is it possible for you to do a, a little recording on your end, either with your phone or, or with... um? If the answer is no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, this I've only gotten to know about podcasts in the last year or so. and uh, But this is the, a new thing where they're asking you and Mike Birbiglia, or both asking <laughs> for me to record the session. Did you just tape with Mike Birbiglia? No, I'm, he's going after you. <laughs> he's an old friend. Yeah, he's great. He's He's been on this podcast as well. And yeah, I'm a big fan of his. You were the witness at his wedding. Is that right? Yes. My husband and I were, it was like one morning, it was in, in summer, it was like in July, it was really hot. And Mike called me and said uh, he and Jen were at uh, City Hall and these friends of theirs, 
he has this friend. I forget. I always his. He has this exotic name. You know, my friend Pythagoras and <laughs> and Ptolemy won't be able to make it. Would you uh, fill in? And so Devlin and I, being gay men, we went. We put on suits. We went down there, and of course they're in like Hawaiian shirts and t-shirts and shorts and sandals. So there was a lot of people, and there was a long line. And I said to Mike, uh, so I got on the. We got on the line with them to you know make the, whatever the application was to get the slot in the chapel. And I said, well, maybe they'll recognize me, and we might, might move this along. <laughs> and Mike said. Uh, oh, oh, Nathan, I don't want any special treatment. And I said, really? Because I live for special treatment. <laughs> That's really all I want is special treatment. <laughs> it's why I got into show business. So, of course, we got there and the, the lady did recognize me. And they, they went quickly into the chapel and we were their witnesses. And then they went off and uh, I said, are you going on a honeymoon? They said, no, we're going to go see a movie and have some pizza. <laughs> that sounds about right. And so when uh, I got married, when my uh, when Devlin and I got married, we asked them to be our witnesses the hall. Nice. Very nice. Full circle. Yes, they repaid the favor. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this. Has the podcast started? Oh, yeah. Age, ages ago it started. Ages ago. I wanted to talk to you today and in this moment because we are just upon the 25th anniversary of the birdcage. Can you believe it? Yes, I can. <laughs> Does it feel like 25 years? No, no, no. You, you know, as you get older, it just, you're, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's hard to imagine. You know, I just, I just turned 65 and yet I can't really believe that. And yes, so yes, I, but I certainly believe it's 25 years since we made the birdcage. So if I have my math right, that puts you around uh, 40 when you made the film. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is, and this was really, this was really your breakthrough film performance as a lead, right? It was kind of your first lead performance in this way in a film. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially uh, in a film directed by Mike Nichols, uh, written by Elaine May and starring Robin Williams <laughs> yeah. and James Hackman. About as good as it gets. That's about as good as it gets. And uh, so it's, uh, I mean, obviously, it's held up. I'd love to kind of start at the beginning and and sort of where you were in your career at this time when this when this project came to you. I mean, what? How did this happen that that you ended up being even considered for for this film? At that time, when I was approached, I was doing um, a, a Neil Simon play called Laughter on the Twenty Third Floor on Broadway. Uh, I had met Mike Nichols briefly. I'd been introduced to him at a rehearsal hall, you know, and that was like meeting God. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was very intimidated by him. And so, you know, I just said hello and, and said what a, an honor it was to meet him. And, you know, and he was, he was gracious, if indifferent. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, um, uh, he, I, I knew he had seen me in plays. Uh, I, you know, I would hear that he was there, but he had never come backstage before. And I, I was, I happened to be filming that day, uh, the, the movie version of Jeffrey, the Paul Rudnick play. And so I got to the theater a little late and sort of rushed in. I didn't make my entrance in the play until late in the first act. So I sort of rushed in, got dressed, got ready. And then I was down by the stage manager's desk and, and I took a little P 
peek to look at the house and I saw Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer. So I thought, oh, I better have some coffee. I better, <laughs> this better be a good one. I better, this better be a good one. Um, and then very surprisingly, he came back and, you know, it was, it's like out of a movie itself, the, him coming back and saying, uh, I'd like to talk to you about a film. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, really? Yes, sure. He said, can I, can we talk tomorrow? I said, yes, of course. So I gave him my number and he um, called the next day and explained that he and Elaine were had always wanted to do this, this uh, uh, American remake of Le Cage and that he had... Um, uh, Robin Williams was going to play uh, uh, one half of the couple, and and I said always. Oh, so I, I I said, are you? So you want me to play the? Is it the the drag queen? Is that? And he said, <laughs> yes, yeah. I said, well, that's a very good part. <laughs> and um, he said, how you know? He said, Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, Elaine May is writing. How does that sound? And I said, that sounds like heaven. So um, he was very, uh, you know, ni- initially he had cast Steve Martin. And Robin, you know, from they had done Waiting for Gatto and and they were going to he was going to pair them again. And and then I, I, I'm working with Steve currently on in this uh, Hulu series. Oh, yeah, yeah. That he, that he co-created. Um, but uh, he and Marty Short. But, uh, you know, if it wasn't for Steve, I, I wouldn't have done this film. Because and Steve he, was going to play Armand and, that's and right. Robin and was going to play Albert. your part. Yeah. yeah. Correct. So Steve couldn't get out of this other movie situation. And then Robin decided, because of that, Robin decided he had already done Mrs. Doubtfire, didn't want to get an address again. And perhaps it was more interesting for him to play the more reserved half of the couple. And that's when that part opened up. You know, he he treated me as if I was a movie star and included me on every part of it. He would let me know what was going on for for a minute. It's maybe Robin wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and he would suggest other people. You know, he said, what do you think of Billy Crystal as your husband? And I said, <laughs> Why I love Billy. Okay. <laughs> and and then one night I ran into him at a benefit and he said, Robert Redford. Robert <laughs> wow. Redford is your husband. I said, Well, if you can make that happen, then <laughs> you all my dreams will come true. <laughs> so finally it was Robin was going to do it. But then I was supposed to do a a revival of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that yes. Scott Rudin Scott Rudin was producing. And it was going to be uh, maybe a conflict with this filming of the birdcage. And so I had to say no to the movie. I had to, t- I almost had, I, I, in fact, I did turn the movie down. The movie, <laughs> that's the only movie I've made that people ever talk about. <laughs> you almost unless, turned down. Unless you did turn a, down. Unless it's a Russian cab driver or a stoner who loves mouse hunt. Oh, okay. It, this is the movie people talk about. So I turned it down, sadly, tragically. And then Mike, um, I would hear from him from time to time. And when I was still doing the play, he called me once in my dressing room from Ireland, mm-hmm. where he was on a, a vacation and said, you know, I'm seeing all these people and I keep thinking you're the guy to play. And I said, <laughs> I said oh, Mike, I said, you know, you're Mike Nichols. Perhaps if you called Scott Rudin, yeah. um, we could work something out and he might postpone. I said, I have no power here. And he said, 
Yes. And then so we hung up <laughs> and then they, they had a, a, a little powwow and uh, Scott uh, very uh, graciously and kindly postponed the production of Forum so I could do this movie. I love that. It shows, you know, who had the power, Scott Rudin or Mike Nichols. That's a tough, uh, tough battle. And ultimately it worked out for everybody because um, the movie came out and fortunately was a success. And that was just before we started. I wonder if uh, Scott knew, had a feeling that that might happen and knew that it would only help him i don't know but it 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 certainly helped in terms of selling the show um that i was this new york actor and then suddenly i was getting national recognition for this film so it it certainly helped a a bit i i would think um so you said you know you were kind of intimidated by mike nichols i mean what about robin williams what was it like to all of a sudden be the co-lead with him be a couple in this movie and really go toe-to-toe with him and even even more so than that he's sort of playing the straight man so to speak for most of the movie and you're the sort of more outsized comic character so that must have been kind of intimidating as well no it wasn't (laughs) because of him because he Mm -hmm. was he was a saint he was a a kind generous sensitive soul and was a real actor as well as being a comic genius at improvisation and 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 stand-up he he was he was a real actor and he wanted the challenge of playing that role and he graciously, you know, shared the screen. And certainly he was a movie star who could have said, I don't want to do it with this guy. I want, you know, get me, get me Billy Crystal or get me some famous movie star to play with. And he, uh, no one could have been more supportive or generous than, than Robin. And we had similar... <laughs> We were very similar in some ways. You know, we both wanted to please Mike and Elaine. They were heroes to us. And we both had that need to, you know, improvise from time to time. And, you know, he was very protective of Elaine and her adaptation. And in in rehearsal, they had said, you know, feel free to improvise during rehearsal and then we'll pick things if we like them. But, uh, you know, once you're when you're really filming, that's when things start to percolate in your mind and. Certainly Robin and I, he would, he very generously would say, all right, I will give you a wild take where you can get it all out of your system and say, say whatever it is that you're dying to say, or, or you have an idea you want to pursue. And, and so, uh, you know, and a few things came out of that, but no, Robin, you, you know, was, uh, for example, I remember filming a big, um, it was cut out of the film, but I filmed a big nightclub number, uh, uh, the Sondheim song, Can the, That Boy Foxtrot, in front of an audience. And Robin had the day off and he came in because he wanted to be there for me, to be supportive. And he would, he sort of stood in the back and, you know, it was, that's the kind of person he was. He so generous and, and, uh, and, and thoughtful and, um, and just, uh, you know, he would, he kept the energy alive, you know, doing a, a piece like that, which is, even though there's, there's real emotions and real characters going on, you know, it's light and, and frothy and he kept the energy up and would, he entertained between takes and, you know, Gene Hackman, I, I, I think he had just come off that submarine film with Denzel. Mm-hmm. So this was such a relief to be, you know, he had had such a good time. But, you know, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, yeah. I mean, he's so funny in the movie, too. And he's such a great comedic actor, which he, you know, only did kind of a handful of times. What was it like um, acting opposite him and dancing with him as well? 
yes. <laughs> you know, this was sort of Mike's uh, famous no assholes rule. Mm-hmm. You know, he would say to me, I only want, Nathan, I only want nice people, <laughs> just nice people. Yeah, because I think he had come off of this uh, film Wolf with yes. Jack Nicholson, which had a lot of was, problems. was not a good experience. And But Elaine had come in and helped him with the script, done, had done rewrites. And, and then I think that sparked finally taking on Le Cage Faux. But uh, he wanted... Oh, he wanted it to be a happy experience. He wanted it to be a this, uh, I think, a very commercial film, a successful mm-hmm. film, and he wanted it to be a happy experience, and it really was. And everybody, not only was the a pro, but a really sweet, nice people. I mean, Gene Hackman. I I must have said every morning when we were working together, I would tell him he was my favorite actor. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, "Tell me about Scarecrow, you and Al Pacino," and he would go scarecrow and then so he would tell me and he was he was incredibly gracious and um the only time i saw him uncomfortable was when he had to put on that big white dress and the wig <laughs> yeah and but he's supposed to be uncomfortable in the movie so it works so it all worked but he was he was fantastic and you know he's a uh, yes as you said as brilliant at comedy as he is at, at drama and uh, diane weist again yeah, fantastic you know, academy award winner who's just you know adorable uh, Hank Azaria, who just sort of incredible runs away with the whole thing, who's just fantastic and and uh, so funny. And that his story is, you know, initially <clears throat> we did a table read where there was an African American actor playing that part, which is how it was done in the original play and film. And then everyone was a little uncomfortable with all of that stuff now. And so they and they had a they sort of and then they were trying to decide, is this right or not? And Hank, who Mike had said, pick a part you want to play, anything you want to play. And so he was playing the stage manager, but um, he was using that accent, his uh Guatemalan accent. Yeah. <laughs> so everything he said sounded funny. And uh, and they realized, oh, maybe, you know, it's South Beach. The maid is <laughs> Guatemalan. And, and so Hank sort of got uh, moved up to the to the role of the maid of Agador Spartacus and then knocked it out of the park. Absolutely. Armand, why don't you let me be in the show? Come on, aren't you afraid of my Guatemalanness? Your what? My watermelonness, my natural heat. You're afraid I'm too primitive, right, to be on the stage with your little estrogen rockets, right? Oh, yes, you're right. I'm afraid of your heat. Then you have young Callista Flockhart and... Christine Baranski. Christine Baranski. It's unbelievable. I'm really interested in hearing about Mike Nichols as a director of comedy and, you know, of, of farce, really, especially in that the way the movie kind of culminates in this dinner scene, which is such a classic, you know, kind of farcical scene in a in a play or in a movie what did you learn working with him as a director of comedy unlike a, a lot of film directors he he loved rehearsal he and if if it was possible and certainly he did on the birdcage it was rehearsed like a play we we would go every day and for like three weeks which is that's incredible yeah unheard of so it was rehearsed like a play and then while we rehearsed, you know, Elaine would come in and she would say, um, like one day, I remember that uh, uh, when uh, Gene Hackman and Diane Weist arrive and he, he, they're talking to Robin and the and the son about um, the trip that they took. And I think Mike sort of said, oh, um, nobody ever answers. You, you know, when people say, how is, how is, <laughs> yeah, your, yeah. How is your trip? 
And people go, oh, it's fine. Nice. Thanks. <clears throat> no one really ever answers that question. But what if Gene... What if he did, yeah. ...really <laughs> decided to explain what the <laughs> trip is so funny. for him? And then it's so boring that he, he bores himself and gets it. <laughs> so Elaine sort of wrote to that. I remember the, the you know, the, the famous sort of improvisational moment for Robin where he allowed Robin to be Robin for a second where the, the dance... You know the history, yes, yes. history of dance <laughs> in twenty seconds. Yeah. So in a rehearsal that came up, and Robin did it. He just did it, and now then the day came when we were going to film it. And I wonder with Mike, he was so smart. He was always, you know, he came in and he went out, the smartest guy in the room. So it was a little intimidating, and and you know his wit, which could be you know miraculous but lethal at times. Um, you were afraid, you know, you didn't want to get, <laughs> you wouldn't want to get on his bad side. And, but he was, you know, incredibly kind. But that one, that morning, it was like he woke up and I was supposed to be in full costume for the, uh, for that sequence, for the rehearsal and makeup and, you know, Marlena Dietrich, whatever it was. And uh, he said that morning, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. He threw it all out. And Anne Roth, the brilliant Anne Roth, his costume designer for many, many films and plays um had to scramble and came up with that sort of flash dance rehearsal togs and you know the sweat socks and the whole <laughs> yeah it's great bandana whatever it was he and it had to be reimagined as a more of a a looser rehearsal as opposed to uh, uh we're rehearsing the full with the set and the uh, costumes so that threw everybody and then and then this is what i recall he was like suddenly he was um uh, waffling on robin doing that improvisation that are we taking them out of the story is it is it saying to the audience oh look it's robin williams and he's doing that thing how do we keep it he's and then he said there's no ending to it and so i i we it was robin and i and mike and we were all standing there and uh, and he's saying i don't know and, and what about you know and so robin and i said oh, this and i said you know a director once said to me <laughs> I love what you're doing, but keep it all inside. Yeah. <laughs> and and Mike said, that's good. And so that so that's <laughs> Yeah, that's a great line. So we sort of saved this what seemed to be on teetering on on extinction, um, survived and and now of course it's you know, one of people's favorite moments is Robin doing that. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. Does that remain a pretty uh, unique experience for you in terms of that level of collaboration of saying, you know, anyone can kind of uh, throw an idea in there, even if it is intimidating? Yeah, I mean, certainly at that point, we were comfortable with each other and it wasn't I wasn't tiptoeing. You know, in the beginning, it's just to sit down to dinner with Mike Nichols and Elaine May. I remember bringing the my um, record album and even with <laughs> May and asking them to sign it. You know, I couldn't believe I was in their company. So, by, but by then we certainly felt free enough to try things or throw in something here or there. When the Schneckenbeckens was just a little ad lib, 
you know, Robin, Robin saying to me, oh, you're going to the, to the uh, cemetery with your toothbrush. And he said, how Egyptian. And um, little, little things like that. It was one of those once in a lifetime experiences with, you know, a group of comic geniuses and the, the best actors at the top of their game. Uh, so, you know, I just felt very lucky to be invited to the party. Yeah, the the other scenes that really stood out to me rewatching it um, are the ones where where Robin's kind of teaching you how to be straight, how to pass as straight. And I was I was wondering if you had any memories from from filming those sequences because well, they're they're so funny. You no, know, there was a. <laughs> I remember Mike invited me to uh, his house on Martha's Vineyard, where he showed me for a weekend. Where he showed me the film. Uh, um, you know, he had he and Diane Sawyer had bought this gorgeous uh, estate on Martha's Vineyard that was um, formerly owned by the, the the stage actress Catherine Cornell. It was it, it was it's called Chip Shop. <laughs> you know, you're wealthy <laughs> when your estate has a name. Yes, exactly. So I spent a weekend at Chip Shop in the Noel Coward Cottage, <laughs> and. You know, I, I was it was overwhelming and they showed me the film and I knew that, you know, it was very special. But, you know, for any actor, I think, uh, at least for me, it's it's always the, the first time. It's just shocking. And all you can think of is, well, I wish I'd done that better. Or why did they use that take? Or, you know, why did they cut that? Mm-hmm. Uh it was one thing um, before we entered that hotel and played that scene. There was a scene down coming down the street when, when I think I've been asked to leave when the, uh, for when the parents are going to come for dinner. And we walked down the street and in a wild well, <laughs> I had asked Mike if um, there's that street there where we were filming where there's no traffic. I mean, once in a while, a car slowly goes by on that street in South Beach. And I said to Mike, I want to go down and lie down in the middle of the street <laughs> and wait for a car to run me over. And, you know, the fact is that so few cars come on. And he, Mike was like, well, I think that might be too much. <laughs> I thought, well, let's try it. But anyway, he let us have a wild take as we were walking to the hotel. And Robin and I improvised. And I got quite hysterical talking to the people in tables along the way that I, <laughs> I was going to be homeless and would they take me in? <laughs> How horrible, what a horrible turn my life had taken because of him. And then I fainted, but I really fainted. I just dropped to the ground and Robin picked me up and carried me. (laughs) So by the time we finished, all of the extras applauded. I thought, well, they have to use that tape. That has to go in. It's so funny. And then Mike said, the first thing he said to me after the screening was, you're wondering why I didn't use that tape. (laughs) I said, well, it was pretty funny. And he said, well, that was the problem. It was funnier than the scene that followed. (laughs) Anyway, look, I love the film, obviously. And um, uh, the scene... Wait, that that famous scene um, was supposed to take place inside in a dining room, and then the cinematographer, the, this you know, he's now won three Oscars, uh, Emmanuel Chivo Lubetsky. Chivo. He wanted um, to do uh, do it outside.
died because of the fact that there's a fountain and a thing. And, he, and it was maybe 103 degrees out. Oh, yeah. You could tell. It looks hot. And so that day started. So that was going to be a whole thing. One of the, the continuity, wonderful continuity lady fainted. It was so hot. And they had hired a young actor. I remember this. That morning, we met this young actor who had, the, he comes in and says, uh, right away, whatever it is. And he had like two lines, maybe. The waiter or something? Yeah, the waiter. He was a nice young man, you know, and he was very excited, especially to be working with Mike Nichols and Robin Williams. I don't know if he knew who I was. <laughs> he was very excited and told us, uh, Robin and myself, you know, how thrilled he was to be working on the film. And that was his first job on a film. So we rehearsed. And then Mike takes us aside like a, like the children in a divorce and says, listen, I'm going to fire this guy because it will save a lot of time. He's not going to be able to get it right. And he said, and it's a very long scene and I can't have him coming in and screwing up the tape. Robin and I were like, oh, oh, Mike, oh, Mike, he's just, it's his first movie. Maybe, yeah, give the give the kid a break. Give him a chance. You know, maybe I'm sure he didn't seem, it didn't seem bad. You know, he only had to say right away, sir, something like that. And I was like, oh, don't. And then finally, you know, he said, no, you have to trust me on this. I'm going to do it. And we both hid in our trailers until, you know, the the, uh, execution was over. And then um, they got one of the ADs plays the part. You know, I I would do it better, I guess. I wouldn't say it's a breakthrough. He didn't leave. He didn't leave his job to become an actor, but <laughs> I guess it made Mike feel better. And um, yes, I always remember that. <laughs> How horrible we felt when we started. All right. <gasps> now this is a dinner party. Let's work with food. All right. Spread some mustard on the toast. Don't use the spoon and don't dribble little dots of mustard. No? No. You take your knife and you smear. Men smear. Smear. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Get the goddamn stinky down. All right, make your fingers like iron, all right? Yeah, and stop trembling. Hold the knife boldly in strength. I'm gonna pierce the toast. Yes, other than that, it, we had fun. <laughs> I always had fun with Robin. We made each other laugh, and, and we both loved throwing things in and seeing where it would take us. And so, yes, it's a very fond memory indeed. Coming up, Nathan opens up about the difficult decisions he had to make in the aftermath of the birdcage and why he wishes he had been brave enough to come out to Oprah. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As you may have heard me mention, this is the 100th episode of The Last Laugh, which means there are 99 other great episodes that you can listen to right now. Like our conversations with Sasha Baron Cohen, or Kathy Griffin, or Judd Apatow, or Chelsea Handler, or Martin Short, or so many other hilarious comedians. So please make sure you are subscribed to The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts so you can hear everything from our free archive and be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to my interview with Nathan Lane. So you said, you know, Mike was trying to make a big commercial hit and he did. I mean, this movie was, was a big hit and probably more successful than anyone expected it to be, you know, especially, you know, because it's, it centers on a, on a gay couple 25 years ago, that was even more radical than it would be now. And it still would be radical for a a movie about a gay couple to do very well at the box office, I think. Yeah. I, he, yes, I think he was determined to have a big, commercial success. And I think it is his most successful film, uh, financially anyway. There's something kind of tragic about the film as well, just in the way that your character, Albert, is treated by his family in in a lot of the scenes. And obviously it has a happy ending and everyone kind of comes around. But how do you think about that? Yeah. One advantage, and it's all, you know, again, it's about casting. The original French film, if you, uh, and it's fantastic, The young man who plays the son, he's very young. He couldn't be more than 17, 18. And he's very beautiful and very, um, there's such an innocence about him. And it just, you forgive what he's asking them to do. And now in our case, Dan Futterman, who was, uh, was terrific, but he's much older. He had to be, he was in his late 20s. Um, he looks like more of an adult who would, who would know better than to treat, you know, his parents this way. So it's a slight difference, but I think it does make a difference that the advantages was having this, this very young, innocent boy ask his parents to, to do this so he could be with this wonderful girl he loves. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, it's just a, it's just a little thing. But I think, um, yes, it, people have said to me, well, what was wrong with that son? <laughs> yeah, people get mad at the son. Why? Yeah, they got very mad at him. You know, I know this is something that you've talked about a little bit before, but, you know, at the time the film came out and you were promoting and everything, you know, you had not come out publicly in a in a big, you know, public way. And I'm wondering, did that complicate for you the experience of promoting it and the awards season and all that kind of stuff? You know, I it was something I hadn't really thought about until Robin and I were going to do the Oprah Winfrey show. And I realized, oh, and, you know, and then the junkets, I realized it was going to come up. And, uh, you know, this is what this at the same time I got a publicist, the same publicist I have today, Simon Hall, who um, said, what do you want to do? You know, he 
too, is a gay man. He's ma- married to Matt Bomer. They have three children. But he, at the time, he said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, to be honest with you, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not, I said, I can't tell you that I'm, I mean, I, I am out. I'm not in the closet to family and friends, but I have not come out. There's been no need to come out publicly or make a statement. And I said, I, to tell you the truth, I'm not terribly comfortable walking into a room and going from table to table and discussing my personal life when this is the first time I'm I, I'm getting a, a role of this size. And I would like it to be about the, the work as opposed to my sexuality, which, for right or wrong, that's what I was feeling. Now, today, people, you know, people don't feel a need to come out and make a big statement. People mention it in an acceptance speech. Oh, yes, and my husband, Phil. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> I couldn't have done this without him. So, uh, but at the time was very much a time of people being outed and, 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 you know, obviously, yes, I agree with Harvey Milk. It's the most political thing you could do is, is to come out. But, um, you know, he was talking about to family and friends, not, not necessarily coming out in a public forum and telling the world that you're gay. And I wasn't ready or emotionally mature enough to deal with it. Just dealing with, um, suddenly everybody knowing who you are was a shock. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like you think about around that time was, you know, Ellen's uh, Yep, I'm Gay on, on Time Magazine and things like that. But she was already quite famous. But for you, it was almost like you were becoming a star. And did you not want that to be part of your story of, of becoming a, a star? I, I didn't feel like I was becoming a star. I just felt I, 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 wanted, <laughs> I wanted it to be about the performance and not my sexuality. And so I just decided to say, I'd rather not discuss that, which, you know, which ultimately you might as well have said, oh yes, I like sleeping with men. (laughs) So you might as well have just said it. And I wish I had been brave enough to just, you know, when Oprah said, gee, you're awfully good at those girly things. Thanks, Oprah. You know, (laughs) what I should have said was, why is that? She said, and I should have said, well, I'd like to think it's because I'm a really good actor. But if you're asking me if I'm gay, the answer to that question is yes. But I didn't say that. I was very nervous, meaning just being uh, talking to Oprah. And Robin was very protective of me and Mm -hmm. saw where that conversation was headed. And he sort of quickly detoured her in another direction. Um, But I realized, you know, this was something I was going to have to deal with. Were you afraid director. of taking that role and being like typecast and people forever saying, are you, are you not, is he, is he, honey, I don't know. Um, <laughs> girl, you changed just in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> I don't know, I'm telling you. Mm, mm-hmm. Don't make me come out there. <laughs> what was that? I love all of a sudden. Yeah. So? <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> You know, for some reason, it's it's in the original play and film, the use, use of the word fag as sort of a punchline. And there was a scene coming up and I, I went to Mike and I said, listen, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with this for me personally, but this character using the word fag, Alexander the Great was a fag. And I said, "Is can't we use something else? And he made, you know, we, there was a long discussion. And, I, and as I said, I always felt like I'm just lucky to be invited to the party. And, you know, he went on about it. And finally, I said, well, listen, you know, as the only fag in the room, it makes me <laughs> uncomfortable. And he said, I understand. He said, would you, he said, just 
do one as written, you know, the oldest trick in the book. And I said, uh, I said, because I, my need to please, I said, yeah, well, yes, of course. And that's what's in the movie. Now there's an idiotic issue, gays in the military. I mean, those haircuts, those uniforms, who cares? Uh, no, <laughs> you shouldn't be talking about things you don't know about. Val, don't patronize your mother. She's an amazingly intelligent woman. You know, I think homosexuality... Lots more ice for you. Lots more ice, Dad. One of the things that's weakening this country. Really? You know, that's what I thought until I found out Alexander the Great was a fag. Talk about gays in the military. And that's when you're saying it in character as the mother, right? Yeah, as sort of right. the conservative mother. Was that part of it for you, that it was coming out of her mouth? Yes. Then why would she... You know, is she pretending to be, you know, I I said, you know, there's also the argument of is he pretending to be a Republican just to win them over or, you know, but I don't think so. I think he's, you know, basically they Elaine was saying he's on the same wavelength as Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss, which I also had issues with. But, um, you know, the great thing about the original French film was how subversive it was in that, you know, that even though it was in the guise of a French farce, you know, the heterosexual sexuals were the villains and the gay people <laughs> were the heroes in particular uh, alban or in my case albert but you know with the word fag it's interesting two of the most sophisticated groundbreaking comedians in the world mike nichols and elaine may and yet they sort of certainly came up in a world where that f- word fag was used as a punchline and wouldn't let go of it you know and i, I, I i'll tell you after the film had come out and was a big success, I was sitting in a cab in Midtown Manhattan in traffic, and there was a guy in a truck uh, next to me, and he he looked down, and he uh, I, I looked up, and he seemed to recognize me and smiled, and I sort of waved, and he's and he started yelling, "Faggot! Hey, faggot!" And this went on and on and on, and and you know I sort of sunk back in the cab, and finally mm-hmm. traffic moved, and I you know wanted to say, I, I wish Mike was here so we could hear this use of the word. Not to get anything away from the success of the film and what it means to people and, and how it still makes people happy. But you know, now, of course, when they show it on network television, they bleep that word. Yeah. Well, I would say anything that's 25 years old, any piece of art is not going to have aged perfectly in every way. Well, no. I mean, look, uh, yeah, you can chalk it up to him the, the character may be trying to ingratiate himself with them and saying it that cavalierly. But yeah, no, it was a it was a weird moment in what was an otherwise perfect uh, situation. Uh, just, uh, you know, a great thing to be a part of. Do you feel like do you feel like coming out affected your career in a negative way after you, you know, did finally say, you know, I'm going to go, I think it was the the cover of Advocate or an interview in, in Advocate. Do you feel like that that hurt your ability to play sort of any role that you might have wanted to play? Well, not in the theater. Look, I don't know. We'll never know uh, what is said behind closed door. I, you know, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard things. <laughs> I don't want to sound like Trump. Yeah. I've heard some things. People are saying... Um, but 
I'm sure that it did. I'm sure it did. I mean, also, but also my career was about the theater. If I really, really wanted that, uh, the kind of film and television career that, you know, people seem to think that's, that's what happens. The theater is just a stepping stone to, to film and television. And um, I, I always felt the goal, the place to really learn how to be an actor is in the theater. And, and, and as Terrence McNally taught me, it is, it is a, a goal unto itself. It is a, a very um, uh, important and, and uh, maybe the most satisfying way of expressing ourselves uh, in, in terms of acting. I admire film actors and I, you know, I love when I get to do it. Um, so between my own need to work in the theater as much as I have, whatever it is, 45 years. And, and yes, perhaps, um, you know, look, after The Birdcage, I was offered... I was offered two roles. Uh, I thought for sure, well, you know, you know, maybe some really good things might come from this. And then I was offered a film of Mr. Magoo, <laughs> and it was uh, I can't remember the director's name. He was an Asian director, and um, and the discussion was. Um, I said, so you're going to do the the Jim Backus cartoon character, and um, he said, yeah, but it's all new. It's all new, Mr. Magoo. So I said, well, will he have a shaved head and squinty eyes, and he, he's nearsighted? You can't see. No, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> I said, well, what if you if you take that away? What it, is there? <laughs> oh, that's Mr. Magoo. Yeah. Why, well, George? You know, if you're not doing <laughs> that stuff, what is it? I don't know what it is. <laughs> So, and it was a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money <laughs> that I turned out a lot of money. And then the other job was Mouse Hunt. You know, the new uh, studio, DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg, David Geffen. And that was a real, that was a bit of a risk too, because I remember reading it and saying, well, this is like a Tom and Jerry cartoon coming alive. And, and, but it, this director, um, and it was his first film, Gore Verbinski. And up, up to then, he had he he was best known for directing the Budweiser Frogs commercial. <laughs> but I talked to him, and he was you know really uh, smart and a lovely guy, and he had a very dark take on this um, material. And he kept referencing you know Roman Polanski's The Tenant. <laughs> and I would say yes, that was good, but we're doing a movie called Mouse Hunt. <laughs> um, and yet, so he turned this you know what it was a children's or family film into this subversive Coen Brothers movie for kids. And, you know, he got one of the most brilliant comedians in the world of now, you know, a friend, Lee Evans, to play, you know, we play brothers. And I begged them. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't going to hire Chris Walken because he was too expensive. And I said, give him some of my money. Uh, <laughs> I begged them and they finally gave, hired Chris Walken. So that was, you know, and that was a, a, a fun experience, but uh, that was it. I didn't, you know, there weren't, uh, it wasn't like there were a whole bunch of offers, not even offers to play other flamboyant gay men. Did you audition for um, sort of big comedy movies after that, that that you didn't get? I honestly don't remember a lot of stuff coming my way. You know, it literally it was I was with uh, an agent at the time, <laughs> who, um, a man named Jeff Hunter, a very a sort of famous agent, had a lot of famous clients, Kevin Klein, Morgan Freeman, and I had a, a lunch with him where I said, "Gee, I I thought more might come my way after the birdcage. And he said, well, maybe if you weren't so open about your sexuality, it would. So 
he apparently thought I was pretty open. <laughs> my second. Meanwhile, you're saying, but I, but I was, I didn't tell anyone. You know, initially, you know, at that time, I did make a joke to some magazine where I they asked um, if I was gay, and I said, I'm 40 single, and I work a lot of the musical theater. You do the math. <laughs> what do you need? Flashcards? I thought that it answered the question, but. Unfortunately, it did. apparently uh, not enough. Not enough. Not enough. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what he said to me, and I was like, maybe it's time for a new agent. Look, you know what? I've had a wonderful, enviable career. Yes, I don't know how much homophobia has played a part in 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 film or, or or even television. I would think not so much in television, but I'm curious if you have an opinion just because this has become kind of a in the last few years I would say a discussion about straight actors playing gay roles and if you think there's any if there's a problem with that or you think sort of anyone should be able to play anything. It's a much bigger issue. And you know, you have to take into consideration the world we're living in right now. And on some level, you can't really fight it. And sometimes there's a point and sometimes it seems ridiculous. No, I don't think gay roles have to be played by gay actors. Do I think maybe something special <laughs> might come from it? Perhaps. I just saw Supernova with Stanley Tucci, uh, a friend, and Colin Firth, and they give beautiful performances. So here's an example. Here's something. <laughs> and it, it ties in with podcasts and gay actors and, and this whole subject. Now, a year ago, I knew nothing about podcasts. And then you know, I did uh, Mark Marin. You know, he's like the mothership of podcasts. Absolutely. And then suddenly, uh, a, a lot of podcasts came into my life. So the pandemic suddenly, we have a lot of time on our hands. I'm listening to podcasts, and there's a podcast called Beyond the Box Set, run by these two uh, young British fellas, in which they propose sequels to movies that they love that didn't have <laughs> sequels. Oh. And one of them was it, the title of the podcast was Birdcage Two. Star arena rides again so i got nothing to do i listen to it and one guy one guy pitches and then and then the other the other guy gives a pitch there was the first pitch was not good <laughs> then the second guy his name is john lucas he starts to pitch the, another sequel and i'm listening to this thing and i'm thinking gee this is really good <laughs> he's suggesting actors who should be in it and I'm like, wow, I'd like to see this movie. <laughs> I had always thought, you know, Mike is gone. Robin is gone. You can't really revisit this. But what this guy came up with, I thought, wow, it's a way to honor Robin and go off on another adventure with my character and um, Agador and going to Guatemala. It's a really smart, clever, funny pitch. So I said to my manager, listen to this. How about this? He takes it to MGM. MGM likes it. Wow. So they're optioning it. Oh, my God. And they're going to try to see, if, you know, to team with a streamer and <laughs> it can actually happen. This is all because of a podcast. But that's so funny. But but finally, uh, I said, maybe someone should mention this to Hank Azaria. He said, I can't possibly play the party. He said, people would go crazy. He said, I have one word for you, Apu. Yeah, he's had his own uh, separate controversy. Yeah. You know, he said, I loved playing it. I would love to do it again, but it's just not appropriate now. And you should get a, a Latin actor. So then again, I thought, oh, well, that's the maybe the end of that. And then I thought, gee, this idea is so good. If you, you could find a great Latin actor, comedian, it, it could make, still work. It's now 25 
years later, we're all older looking. <laughs> Agador looks a little different. Yeah, or maybe it's Agador's uh, son. <laughs> son of Agador. Yeah. <laughs> Birdcage 2, son of Agador. Oh, that's pretty good. Anyway, look, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's interesting. It came about from a podcast. And, you know, and I was saying, really, don't you think Hank would get a special dispensation from Guatemala, the government, uh, you know, because he's so beloved in that cat. And then yet, I recently I've seen him referenced in articles about this subject, like, you know, that horrible stereotype. Yeah, I mean, he's so fantastic in the movie, but I do understand, given everything that he's had to do deal with, that why he wouldn't want to do it. But And then my take sometimes is, you know what, just say, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? you going to arrest me for playing a part? You know, I don't know. It can be carried to an extreme. I certainly get it. You know, it's uh, happening now with the, this film, the SIA film, music. About autism or... About, you know, why didn't they hire an autistic actor to play the autistic? Yeah, I mean, these are conversations that just weren't happening when when the birdcage was made, really. You know, you feel like, well, you know, if they made an effort to do it and, uh, you know, but I mean, to say it has to be this or it has to be, you know, uh, I think, you know, to a certain degree, it's like, well, you know, does this mean Meryl Streep is out of business because she can't do another accent ever again? She's not Polish. I don't know where, you know, the parameters are. And at, at a certain point, I understand it and, and try, I understand trying, trying, making an effort to do it. But also what, what about acting acting is <laughs> this is a part of acting to take on different personalities different a totally different character than you you know peter sellers he wouldn't be able to work today so i don't know it's but it's obviously i think it's a healthy discussion so, you know <laughs> but i think it can be taken to an extreme i get nostalgic for the just being able to act. Well, you know, I think obviously the other, just the other anniversary that I wanted to touch on, because I think it was sort of your next big thing after The Birdcage, it's now, I believe, the 20th anniversary this year of The Producers on Broadway, right? Is it? Okay. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. It was 2001. We did it. We, we don't have a, a ton of time, but I, I just wanted to know if, if I could get a quick Mel Brooks story from you. Maybe the, the first time you met him or your, or, or just something that stands out of your time spent with Mel Brooks. Well, I, um, you know, Mel is just a legend. And uh, again, another, you know, hero and someone, I, I, it was such uh, a privilege to get to work with him and collaborate. You know, I had met Mel, he, again, Neil Simon played, Laughter on the 23rd Floor. The first time I met him, he and Anne Bancroft to, had come to see it. Back, they came backstage. They were very gracious. Uh, there was a character based on Mel in the play. You know, I remember him referencing it, saying that that guy who's supposed to be me, It's he said, it's a tissue of lie. <laughs> Um, but the next time I saw him, well, I was in Paris at the Ritz. I went down to the swimming pool and there were two people in the pool and it was Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. And uh, so I said, hello. I got in the pool and swam some laps. She, she went upstairs and Mel stayed in the pool and talked to me. And that's when he said, I'm writing a, a musical version of the, the producers. And I think you're the person to play Max Alistair. Good thing you were at that hotel. <laughs> uh, and so I said, well, that would be unbelievable. That would be a great, great honor. And uh, they, at the time he said, you, I see you and Marty Short. And uh, I said, well, that would be fantastic. And then Marty had just done a revival of Little Me and had spent a lot of time in New York away from his family and didn't want to make that kind of commitment again. And so happily, someone suggested Matthew Broadway, who was just 
perfect. And yeah, it worked out well for him. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, for all of us, it was uh, it was just one of the high points of my my career. Speaking of of Martin Short, who uh, I talked to a few months ago, and he was talking about this new project that he was doing with with Steve Martin, and then I found out that you're in it as well. So I really can't wait to see this thing. Are you filming it now, or is it over? Have you d- finished? Or no, I have no. But uh, yeah, it's look, it's uh, it's really smart and funny. And it's uh, only murders in the building is the title. Yeah, I, it's I called only murders in the building, <laughs> and it, it it's about a podcast. Oh uh, yeah, a true crime. Kind of a, yeah, true crime pro- podcast. Uh, that's a part of the plot. But uh, it's yeah, Steve who co-created it, Marty and Selena Gomez, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. It is. It's great fun just to look to be, to be on set with Marty and Steve. Is that's just joyous. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to be something special. So I will let you go in just a minute. But we end the podcast by sort of talking about comedians who have made you laugh the hardest in your life. And what I'd love to know from you is someone someone from your childhood someone who is sort of a contemporary of yours and then maybe someone who's who's coming up below you who you've noticed um you can do any any of or all three um comedians who who really make you laugh from my childhood you know i always have to cite jackie gleason he was my idol an influence too maybe oh without question Without question. And then sort of ancillary, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, but Gleason and Carney, but mainly Gleason. Also, Jonathan Winters really made me laugh. You know, him on The Tonight Show talking about his childhood. And, you know, he was that kind of, you know, genius. And Don Rickles, who I got to know a bit later in life, was God. He made me so laugh. So funny. And then, I mean, a contemporary of mine, well, Robin, of course, for sure, he would make me laugh till I cried. In fact, <laughs> it seemed to be a goal. I just have to say, please stop. You know, Marty Short, filming just only a few weeks ago. <laughs> he and I, it was a long day. We were filming a dinner scene and he was in a velvet suit with a ponytail. He was, it was a flashback <laughs> to when we were younger and, uh, and at a certain point, I we both got a laughing jag going that couldn't stop. Uh, and was, and Steve Martin as well. I mean, my God, another genius. And who was what was the third category? If there's anyone who you kind of have seen, maybe who you know of a younger generation who really um, who you think is is someone people should check out, who you uh, who you've liked watching, or or just as someone who who's been inspiring to you in some way. Well, Mike Birbiglia, you know, I uh, just a huge fan, and uh, Mitch Hedberg. How I loved Mitch Hedberg so much. What a tragedy that he's gone. I know. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. You know, I, I if you gave me a list, I could pick out. Yeah. A, um, <laughs> no, uh, those are all those uh, are all great people. They're not, you know, I'm not they're not as so young. But yeah, I'm trying to think of young. Who's that? Julio Torres. Oh, yes. He's wonderful. I enjoy him. That's a unique point of view. And uh, and, <laughs> and just he's he's somebody very special and brave and just you got to love. Julio Torres. Totally unique. But yeah, you know, many, there's there's many. Well, this has been such a pleasure for me to get to talk to you. I'm just a huge fan. And and as I said, this movie, The Birdcage, I think it's just one of the, the all-time funniest films ever. So I, I loved talking with you about it. And yeah, good luck with everything that you have coming up. I'm I'm excited to see your what you have coming next as well. Thanks, Matt. 
Appreciated. Take care, old. Say hi to Mike Birbiglia for me. (laughs) I will. I will. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Nathan Lane for being our 100th guest on The Last Laugh. I am seriously looking forward to seeing him in Only Murders in the Building, opposite Steve Martin and Martin Short on Hulu later this year. Oh, and if you still somehow haven't seen The Birdcage, it's available to rent or buy on pretty much all of the major platforms. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.